0: This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com.
1: Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I'm your host, Amber Cullum, and this week... I sit down with my real-life friend, Erica Baldwin. Imagine being 33 years old and discovering you have a rare genetic syndrome that carries a prognosis including shortened life expectancy. How would your life change? How would you view relationships differently? How would your walk with Jesus change? that is a small glimpse of what you will hear from erica today along with suffering well versus suffering poorly february marks three years of the grace enough podcast and this month is filled with life-giving conversations that speak directly to struggles we are all experiencing after listening to today's conversation with erica go back and listen to episode 160 with chris martin where we discuss how social media is shaping us and what we can do about it and then episode 161 with john eldridge where we discuss caring for your soul while continuing to live during a pandemic and then be sure to tune in next week as I sit down with Max Licato to discuss his writing and his journey of being a pastor for almost four decades. It's one you won't want to miss. Okay, friends, let's begin this week's conversation with Erica Baldwin. Good morning, Erica, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast.
2: Good morning, Amber. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I know it's great because I really thought maybe we should try this one in person since you're so close by. And I just thought I'm not
2: brave enough yet to do that. It's okay. It's okay. I'll (laughs) high five from around the corner. That's right.
1: Well, I, um, I am thrilled to share your story. I had just um, shared on Instagram this morning, actually that this year, I really just want to share some more stories of God's work in people's life that are not necessarily, uh, you know, huge published authors and things of that nature. And so what a great way to start off with your story. And so tell everybody a little about yourself, your family, and what you do on a day-to-day basis.
2: Sure. Well, I am a mom to a 10-year-old boy active 10 year old boy. And we have an international student living with us from China for her third year. So I get to be a mom to a bonus daughter. And I'm married for 19 years to my husband, Steve. And I'm a freelance writer. And I also have a ministry blog and I write collaboratively to write about the intersection of chronic illness, suffering and God's goodness. I also love coffee dates with my girlfriends, (laughs) fall weather, which North Carolina winter feels like Midwest fall, which is where I'm from. And uh, we love to travel and then just find little gems in the city where we live. So parks and trails and fun places to eat.
1: I know. I feel like I need to get together with you on that because there's probably a lot of wisdom you can share with me because I love to do that as well here in Raleigh. And vice
2: versa. Yeah. Yeah, We have a lot of
1: great little little things here in Raleigh that sometimes can go and notice the longer you live here because you kind of get in your routines and I forget about all that. Well, we're here today because February is rare disease month. And that is something that is near to your heart because it's personal to your life. And so, will you take us back and share the event that happened when you were 20 years old. And how that really launched you into discovering this rare disease that you live with daily?
2: You know, I grew up healthy, assuming I was healthy and everything seemed fine. I was when I was twenty. I was a student at a Christian college in the Midwest on a ministry team, the student newspaper. Loved life. I mean, just Mm -hmm. loved the Lord. Loved being at a Christian college, and then suddenly, uh, March of my sophomore year. A stomach ache landed me in the hospital, going septic because uh, my colon had ruptured, and I nearly died. Um, it was really scary. The surgeon said when they opened me up, it looked like a bomb had gone off, hmm. and um, they had to remove several feet of intestines. And things were just not healing. It took six months of surgeries and three different hospitals to get me well. I was in home health. I was on IV feeding constantly, nothing by mouth because my intestines wouldn't heal. I couldn't, they were unattached. I had a colostomy bag, a jejunostomy mm-hmm. bag. Um, I was launched into this alternate universe of being a full-time patient. From a full-time well, so student. tell me,
1: did you, I'm assuming you, did you have to quit school?
2: I had to quit school. I missed a semester and a half and yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it's just an alternate universe. There was no talk of uh, a diagnosis. They, especially of what we later would find out was a connective tissue disorder. They tested me over and over for Crohn's and some other diseases, but nothing was definitive. They just could not figure out why this twenty-year healthy twenty-year-old was suddenly so sick. Mm. And so after I finally got well, we just assumed that I would be healthy. And that was it.
1: So you moved back home. So interesting because in that time, I mean, you didn't have the phone and all of that, which in some ways I could, I could see where that would be better, but I could also see where that could breed some real loneliness. Um, Was that true?
2: Or did you feel really supported at home? My mom was great. She kind of stopped her life. I had a little brother who was four at the time. Oh, wow. And she would come and stay with me at the hospital. I was in the hospital for weeks and months at a time and back home. My stepdad was helped me with my IV feeding every night, hooked me up for 12 hours. We had a lot of support, family Mm. support and church support. Um, At first I was at a hospital about 45 minutes away from home. And then I had to move to a bigger hospital about three hours from home. Oh wow! Looking back, you know, you said phones and connectedness. I'm actually thankful that there was not social media at, at the time because I, I felt kicked out of my life and mm. my, you know, my friends were going on with their lives and they did as good a job as they could staying connected and coming to visit me. I had a slumber party in the hospital one night with two girlfriends, mm. uh, but it, it was hard. You know, it was lonely yeah. and isolating, but still with a lot of support.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because I think sometimes we think, oh, social media will make you feel less lonely, but I think when you're watching people move on with their lives and your life is kind of on pause, not kind of, it is on pause, that's even more lonely. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Tell me as well, you had had nothing up to this point, like nothing.
2: No, I mean, there were some small telltale signs, but really... I, I bruised very easily, which a lot of kids bruise. That's right. You know? Um, I have thin skin on my chest and arms and always so, had, I always had some facial features or defining of it, but nothing, nothing major like that till age 20, man. Well, it
1: wasn't until age 33, right. That you actually found out, uh, or received a diagnosis. Is that Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, that's 13 years of all kinds of things taking place. And so kind of walk us through that 13 years. Um, Again, I know that's a really loaded question. So (laughs) I'm probably going to interrupt you and ask a lot of alternate questions. But what was the next incident after this event when you were 20?
2: Well, the next 13 years was actually relatively normal, or at least the next 10 years were I graduated college on time with my peers, wow. barely by the skin of my teeth with That's enough awesome. credits. Yeah. That was a blessing. Um, I met my husband, we got married, we moved from the Midwest to North Carolina. You know, life was good. We were serving in our local church, um, worked in the business world and, you know, life was wonderful. And then, um, in my late twenties, we were struggling with infertility and all the scar tissue in my stomach, just Mm. from being open up and shut open and shut when I was 20 was preventing a pregnancy. So we had to do some pretty extensive fertility treatments. We had a loss in there an ectopic pregnancy, which Mm. was pretty devastating. We suddenly lost my mom. She died unexpectedly. So within like a three-year period, some pretty. Crushing trials. Mm-hmm. And, and then with our second round of fertility treatment, we were able to get pregnant with our son. And there were a few scares during that pregnancy, but as far as we knew, everything was fine.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I went to full, full term. Uh, they had to induce just because of my blood pressure was getting a little high. And then that's when everything literally and figuratively fell apart.
1: Tell me during this time, um, really during that three years, before we go on into what took place when you gave birth, what was your relationship like with Christ? Like you were walking with him, obviously, um, because you went to a Christian college, you did these things, but what kind of took place in your walk with him during all of these trials?
2: I was growing, you know, I still had some wrestling you know, to do with my faith and suffering from when I was 20, you know, I, I didn't get that completely resolved, but
1: do we ever get it completely? resolved?
2: <laughs> no, no, not really. <laughs> um, you know, but you know, I was leading and going to Bible studies. We were serving with youth in our church. Mm. Um, life was good, you know, yeah. and I thought that my 20 year old My trial at 20 years old was my one and done. That was my big trial of my life and uh, check, did it. Okay, God, let's go from here. Um, Well, and I
1: think that's where you and I, you know, I mean, we ended up connecting. It's such an interesting story because you came up to me in Sprouts one day and was like, (laughs) hey, are you Amber of Grace Enough Podcast? And I was like, yes. And I was so excited because as a podcaster, and you probably feel this even as an author, like. You don't really know, like you don't know a lot of the people who are listening or reading, unless someone comes up to you and speaks to you or sends you that email or that text message. and so that was a real gift. But then we ended up connecting a little bit over, um, because you had listened to the conversation with Vanitha Reisner. And I think that's, you know what she says that resonates with me and you and so many people, is that if you have one big event. You feel like, okay, God, that's my, that's it. One and done. I'm done. And that's just not the way it often works. And it wasn't for her and it wasn't for you. And so at 33, tell us what happened when you were induced.
2: So we still thought everything was progressing fine. We were praying against a C-section because of all my scar Mm -hmm. tissue, but I ended up having to have a C-section because our son's heart rate dropped uh, rapidly. So okay, we still go in there. We think everything's okay. They open me up, and my husband's in there, and he hears he hears them say, "Where's the uterus?"
1: Oh gosh,
2: I did not hear them say that. I think that was the Lord protecting me because I would have been like, "What are you doing?" Mm -hmm. They got him out safely. I saw him. I kissed his little head, Mm -hmm. and um, then they ushered my husband out and said, "We have to do more surgery." Like this is my uterus had actually ruptured. Uh, I don't know if it was during contractions or when they opened me up, that's kind of part of my disorder, you know, just weak Mm -hmm. tissues. And so um, I pretty much, I don't know if they sedated me or I was unconscious, but as I was going to sleep, I heard them say uh, they tried so hard to have this baby. It'd be a shame to lose her. And I prayed silently, desperately, right then, God let me hold my baby.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I woke up 20 hours later in ICU, intubated uh, with tubes and drains, and um, just kind of in a daze as to what had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I couldn't talk. I, Tried to do some sign language, but nobody else knew it. And so I was frustrated, mm-hmm. frustrated with that. So I had to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still have those notes, those first pieces of paper. I asked about Reed, our son, like, where is he? Is he in NICU? Is he in regular nursery? And asked what happened. And I said, is it my scar tissue? You know, my, my husband went to bed that night. They worked on me throughout the night for hours wow. and hours. And I think they came to my husband at two or three in the morning and said, um, we got the bleeding to stop. We got the bleeding to stop. And they had given me replaced the blood in my body three times over because (sighs) I bled out. And so he didn't know if he was going to wake up a -hmm. a single dad. Yeah. Uh, And we had friends from our church at the hospital with him. I'm so thankful for that. I didn't want him to be alone. Yeah. Um, our families are a thousand miles away. They had to call in a special surgeon during the night to, oh, and while they were in there with the C section and sewing up my uterus, they um, had to remove several feet of intestines because it was dying as well when they got in there. Wow. And we had no idea while I was pregnant that a-, a war was going on in my body.
1: Well, so when you wake up, I think you said 20 hours later, did they have a prognosis at that time of like, it looks pretty good? Like, we think you're pretty good. I was
2: stable. Mm -hmm. I was stable. I mean, I think that was the, the prognosis at that time. They, you know, I still did not eat anything for like over a week. And then they finally had to put me on IV feeding TPN because my C-section opened back up.
1: For those who don't know, TPN
2: three times a day. Is that right? Uh, I don't know what it was at first. Eventually I was just 12 hours a day continuously on nutrition Daddy. and through uh, my veins. Mm-hmm. Well, so
1: oh, gosh, Ooh. it's just <laughs> it's a lot,
2: right? I mean, how, how long were you in the hospital before you went home? First time was five weeks, okay. five weeks straight. I was in ICU for a week or two. Our son was able to stay in the hospital the whole time. Oh, wow. Us, that would never I, happen now. I know it was incredible. It was that He could be in the room as much as we wanted him to be. And there was still a lot going on. I was constantly going for scans and th- you know, therapies and things like that. And, and scary things were still happening. Uh, about a week after he was born, my neck had started swelling a couple weeks before he was born. And we just thought it was a swollen lymph node. And so a few days after he was born, my husband asked, well, what about this spot on her neck? And so they took me in for scans and, They found five aneurysms in my body.
1: And And for people who are listening, who don't quite understand what an aneurysm is, if you think of a tube that is straight and you, you, you can picture what that looks like. It's like the tube experiences a huge bubble. So it stretches out and all kinds of blood like pull in that. And then the weak, the vessel becomes very, very weak. I like to explain that because sometimes I think for medical, like I am a physical therapist, you know, in my previous life or in my current life, I don't even know. (laughs) Um, But sometimes people don't understand what an aneurysm actually is, but the vessels, blood vessels become very, very weak in specific areas. And so to have five aneurysms is like basically the vessels getting ready to explode.
2: Yes. And the one on my neck uh, was in the carotid artery feeding my brain. Yeah.
1: The two biggest arteries, you know, people that go right
2: up beside your ears. Oh right. my gosh. And so yeah. wh- what, in the, I mean, I don't know, like, what did they do? There were a lot of backroom conversations with doctors and specialists. Doctors told us they talked to their families and asked their wives or husbands what to do. Um, finally a geneticist came in. This was maybe a mm-hmm. week two after our son was born. It was like, we've got to connect these dots. Mm -hmm. Something is going on. So he walked in and looked at me, looked at my history and said, she has a connective tissue disorder. And so they sent off blood work. It has to be confirmed by genetic testing. And it came back positive vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Mm -hmm.
1: VEDS for short.
2: VEDS for short.
1: When you say genetic, somebody in your past had to have
0: it.
2: Do you know who that is? I don't, um, my parents were both gone by the time I had had my son. So, and my grandparents were still living. So it's, it's likely they didn't have it. Uh, you most often don't live until you, until your eighties, when you have this, it can uh, mutate spontaneously. Oh, and, okay. and so I, I don't know, I don't know if it came from either my parents or it's just a spontaneous mutation. With
1: veds, uh, you figure out that you have it. And, you know, it is one of those things where it is a rare disease. Um, it's also an invisible disease. And so, kind of tell people who are listening uh, why that's so important and how that maybe impacts you differently than it might impact somebody who, like, you can visibly see something's going on with them.
2: Well, for me, for people with veds, it means that the building blocks of our body are missing a protein uh, in our collagen. And so that means, like, the framework of my house is basically silly putty,
0: mm.
2: permeable silly putty. Surgeons have said, have literally said, it's like sewing together wet Kleenex or wet paper bags. Wow. And so for me, because it's invisible, I you know, sometimes I carry a little bit of shame for things Mm. I can't do. I remember going on a field trip with my son and I couldn't lift him up into a swing and my friend had to do it. And I just remember thinking, what do the other moms think? You know, Mm -hmm. that I'm lazy or Mm. not interested. And you know, it's just, I have to be constantly mindful of my body, any new pain, can send me to the ER. You know, I, when I was 20 with that colon rupture, it was a stomach ache Mm -hmm. and anything could be life-threatening. And so I have to be hyper aware of what's going on with my body. And with invisible illness, it's, it's made me more compassionate towards other people because I don't know what they're carrying. I don't know what burdens they have. And, you know, it's just made me, I think about that verse when, Jesus looked at the crowds and he was moved with compassion. He saw all of the invisible things they were carrying. Mm. And how overwhelming that would be to us if we did that. But he was moved with compassion and he could meet their needs, their spiritual, their physical, their most important needs. You know, he didn't always heal people. He didn't heal everybody.
1: No.
2: But he met every he could meet every need that they had.
1: Mm. When you think about your faith walk with Christ now. And you do have to live in a constant state of surrender. Cause one of the things with veds, like you said, is a shortened life expectancy and just having to choose constantly not to do things, not to eat certain things. Like it's really has to be a disciplined life too. And that doesn't guarantee anything. So you talk about suffering well, and Surrendering to Christ. And so, flesh that out for us a little bit when it comes to walking with Jesus while suffering from this illness.
2: I've written before and even told you I've done suffering the wrong way and the right way. And I kind of have lived these two real life object lessons. Mm. When I was 20, I was so angry and bitter. And I just wanted it to be done with. Like I wanted the suffering to be over. I didn't want to accept help from anybody, my family, Mm. my nurses. I was resentful and mad at them resentful and mad at my friends who got to live their lives. I refused to let God meet me in the suffering. I thought God meet me when this is done and we'll talk, but I refused so many things from him and in his grace and goodness, he His presence was there anyway. Like he provided comfort. He was offering comfort and I just refused it. I was so mad. Like Mm -hmm. if you ask my family, I was not pleasant to be around. I was angry at the world. And then when I finally did get well, returned to college, I just carried a lot of fear and sorrow and anxiety. I and I just kind of brushed it under the rug. And I thought, okay, God, we're good now. Thank you for healing me. Mm. I still carried fear that more things were going to happen because it was so sudden. What did happen, and we didn't know the cause. But like I said, you know, in that decade of life after that, God just continued to meet me in my needs and minister to me, and I'm I'm so thankful. You know, He didn't He didn't abandon me when I behaved badly. I was His. I was kept and sealed, and um, you know, He didn't want me to act perfectly right. in that situation. He just wanted me to come to him. Mm. So then when I was 33, you know I don't know if it was maturity or God just using what had happened when I was 20, but I, I think of two quotes, two quotes that I've read that have stuck out to me in recent years. One was from Vanita Reisner. and she said, "I no longer contrast joy with sorrow because i found they can coexist." It is purposelessness, not sorrow, that squelches joy. Mm. And I felt so purposeless during that season when I was 20. I just couldn't, I I couldn't see that, hey, God can work in this. You know? And then Elizabeth Elliot has written, acceptance, I believe, is the key to peace in this business of suffering. The key to acceptance, the fact that it's never for nothing. Mm. That suffering is never for nothing. And I I wouldn't accept it. I would not accept it when I was 20. I just numbed myself to it and just went through the motions to try to get better. And so I let those things rule my heart, purposelessness Mm -hmm. and resentment. And then when I was 33, I just realized God was still with me. You know, I was a full-time patient again, but I also was a mom, a mom to a newborn. I was a wife. Um, and I just realized God wasn't punishing me or abandoning me. Like he was there with us. And, you know, we have a suffering savior, savior who knows our grief. He knows our bodily weaknesses and pain. It, it's not this pippy. I know this is a phrase I hate, and I know it's a phrase you hate. Everything happens for a reason. don't say everything does, (laughs) right. Don't say that to people who are suffering, but knowing that God had a purpose, you know, our pastor said just this past week, God is not arbitrary. He is not Mm. careless. He's not careless with his children. Mm. He loves us. He died for us. And so just knowing that this was serving a purpose somehow, some way in his kingdom and our lives. It was not a season of consistent Bible reading, and certainly yeah. not serving in the church. We were out of church for most of a year. We'd go in and out when we could. It felt like a little break free from jail. Um, I'd unhooked from TPN, my IV feeding in the morning, and go to church. I was exhausted from getting ready, come home and rest. But we weren't excelling in spiritual disciplines. But God was not like keeping a checklist. That's right, and. Our guttural prayers and our weary praise were offerings. There were Mm -hmm. offerings during that season. Well, and and you say that
1: you felt purposeless in the suffering when you were 20, but that shifted the next time around. And so I agree that God uses so much of our suffering, our um, broken places to minister to others. And so what are some of those ways that you have seen your suffering in the past and even in the present um, as a ministry to other people? Because I know that you have a support system, but you're also a support for others. And so what are some of those ways that you feel like you've seen some of the purpose come to fruition?
2: I, you know, I started writing just to kind of work out what was going on in my head and my heart um and started blogging probably about 4 years ago just to have a record for our son so he oh, could know yeah. he could know that God is good God is good in our hard seasons and that he can be trusted
0: mm-hmm.
2: and so i've you know spoken a little bit at our church and just through writing have, have gotten a lot of people saying Thank you. You know, like I struggle with some visible trial Mm -hmm. and suffering and, you know, your, your hope is still there. How do you hold on to the hope? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want people to know when you have seasons of doubt and fear that it doesn't have to derail your faith. It can strengthen it. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it's made me more compassionate. It's Mm -hmm. made me slow down a little bit and, listen to people. I'm more of an extrovert and more of a talker. Been trying to become more of a listener in -hmm. recent years. And it's just, it's been a blessing to me to hear other people, other people's hurts and just minister to them through prayer and writing or sharing verses that have meant so much to me. And so I'm I'm thankful when people share their invisible hurts with me that I can share God's love with them.
1: Yeah. Well, the common person, um, and you've kind of shared a little bit, but is there anything else you would add to, you know, for the common person, what do you want them to know about people living with invisible illness?
2: We all could just be a little more patient with each other and (laughs) more understanding. I think a lot of us have, uh, been guilty of being like that person doesn't need the handicap spot. Oh yeah. Uh, And we have no idea if their legs are on fire, Mm. you know, or, you know, I've dealt with that. And, um, invisible illness takes a lot of time and management and mm. doctor's appointments and follow-ups and unknowns. So asking open-ended questions and listening and loving people. Well, I think, um, people don't want to complain and just, yeah. gripe, But they want people to listen. You know, i I don't lead with meeting new people that, Oh, I have this genetic <laughs> condition that's life-threatening, you know, right. it's awkward making new friends sometimes, <laughs> but, you know, get to know people and, and, you know, I'm a lot more than this diagnosis, you know, right. I'm, I'm God's child. I'm a mom, I'm a writer, I'm a wife, you know, I, those things I love to do with, with limits, you know, I'm not going to go running. <laughs> I can't do right. that. My arteries would burst. You know, I have to keep my heart rate at a reasonable level. I get annual checkups every year. We drive 10 hours round trip to see my specialist in Baltimore. So there's, you know, a lot of things. And also with invisible illness, think about their caregivers, uh, mm. their spouse or loved one, you know, people who ha- loved my husband well during that season, that just meant the world to me who kept him fed, mm-hmm. who, went go-kart riding with them, just, he needed a release. It was mm-hmm. so stressful during that mm-hmm. season of constant caretaking. You know, he did, he had not just me, but he had our son too to think yeah. about.
1: Who was a newborn? A newborn. My goodness. Yeah. And so in addition to all your checkups and those types of things, now when things happen, like, what does that process look like? Because I know you've had other things take place, Have you had any big events in the last, you know, several years since your son
2: has been born? About four years ago, I had two surgeries, two aneurysm surgeries. They weren't emergent. They weren't emergency, but they were found during my regular checkup. Two aneurysms that had grown and needed addressed. And I believe that took four trips to Baltimore that year. Wow. Two different surgeries. It might've been five trips. Amazingly. It was an o- only an overnight stay. It went relatively really well as, as planned. Yeah, right. which is <laughs> unusual. That's right. You know, we kind of prepare for the worst. My husband got really good at packing a hospital bag and knowing what he wow. needed. And now when our son, when he's older, we actually like him to go with us and friends stay with him at a hotel. We just want him to see his mommy, you know?
1: Well, and I think there's really... I, th- I think that our desire to protect our children is innate in us, but the harm that we can sometimes do is that then if something happens to us, if we've not been fully honest with them because we're afraid we'll elicit fears and things like that in them, they're just like blown away. Like what the heck happened to mom? Like I had no idea all this was going on and woo, that can be even more damaging, right?
2: Right. He's getting more and more aware of things. And, you know, I don't know how many times the past 10 years we've had to say, be gentle with mommy, (laughs) gentle with mommy. Yeah. Um, but you know, just letting
1: them know, yes, like they need to know what's going on with their family members. So they're not blindsided. Exactly. Well, as we begin to close out here, I mean, this podcast is grace enough. And I know, just from what you've shared here, that you've experienced the grace of God in countless ways, as we all have, but maybe there's something going on in your life currently, or there's something additional that you want to share. And how has the grace of God been enough in your life?
2: Our pastor shared this verse at our son's baby dedication, and it's a great verse for people with vascular Ehlers Danlos with uh, weak tissues. Uh, Colossians one seventeen, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Mm. And His sustaining grace is holding me together, literally and figuratively. Every day that I wake up and open my eyes and like, thank you, God, it's another day. Yeah. But I also know that sustaining grace will hold us together, if and when trials come.
1: Yeah, Amen.
2: Well, Erica, if people want
1: to connect with you, uh, where can they find you if they want to learn more about uh, your writing, about veds, all of the things?
2: I write at ohhisgoodness.com. And you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, Erica Baldwin, Oh His Goodness. And I've uh, written a free devotional called Rest in Jesus for the Anxious Heart that people can get on my website for free. That was born out of Uh, the year 2020, when I had a lot of anxious, sleepless nights. Yeah, people can find me online, and I'd love to connect with you there.
1: Thanks so much, Erica, for being here. I appreciate you.
2: Thank you, Amber. I appreciate it.
1: The tagline around here is God can use any story to impact his kingdom. Yes, it requires surrender and trust, but his grace is enough. I hope you believe that a little bit more after listening to today's conversation with Erica. I'm looking forward to meeting you back here next week as I sit down with Max Licato for episode 163, God So Loved the World.
0: Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time.